Welcome everyone to Weekly Creep. Hey everybody. We're your hosts, Dulce and Adam. And we're going to go ahead and get started with this story. Um, just like always, Adam hasn't told me anything about the story he's going to tell. Our reactions are legit. <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word, they're genuine. And uh, the only thing he has told me is that it's quite lengthy. That's what she said. Girthy. Um, so, yeah. You want to go ahead and jump in? Yeah. Okay. Um, hey, everybody. So, this week, I'm not going to tell you who I'm talking about just yet. But first off, I'm just going to get the sources out of the way. Cool. So, I've got Wikipedia, The Racket Online, The Fifth Estate is a youtube channel it's like a canadian public service tv thing the toronto star the guardian the bbc and globalnews.ca so in case you haven't noticed yet my story is actually from canada oh okay yes no i wouldn't have gotten that from the toronto star oh globalnews.ca and <laughs> canadian youtube anyway good <laughs> <laughs> So, I'm going to start off January 18th, 2018. 2018. Yeah, not that long ago, yeah. Do you remember what you were doing in that year? I was probably at home or working. Were you in Ireland then? Yeah, I was in Ireland then. Oh, okay. That was, yeah, I had just got back from Ireland. You had just left. Oh, that was the... That was the Christmas you came over. That was the Christmas I came over for the first time. God, that was an awful trip trip it was an awful trip there when i was there it was amazing yeah it was dulce's first long flight and one got delayed and she missed the next one and she was very upset yeah by the time i got to the london airport they told me basically sorry we can't help you and they only were inclined to help me once i started publicly crying at the window <laughs> for Erlingus. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to you, Erlingus. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway. Oh, sorry. <laughs> January 18th, 2018. An unidentified man known only as John went to a 19th floor Thorncliffe apartment in Toronto for a secret sexual liaison. Mm. Sexual. John had moved to Canada from the Middle East five years previous, was married, and had not told his family that he was actually gay. Oh, yeah. The plot thickens. He had met the man he was having this affair with through the dating app Growler and had met up for sex several times before. They were into BDSM, so he let the man handcuff him to the bed. This was not nothing out of the ordinary. But then the man proceeded to put a black bag over his head. Whoa. Yeah. So he managed to struggle out of the black bag. And when he did that, the man tried to tape his mouth shut. All of a sudden, police forced their way into the apartment and arrested the man on the spot. What? How? So John was the potential ninth victim of serial killer Bruce MacArthur. I like the way you set that up. Bum, bum, bum. Knock that out the park. Did he have like an alias? No, no, no. This is a guy's name. No, I mean, you know, like how they have like oh no the Strangler or something. No, but there's lots of potential. I'm going to go way back, way, way back. 
Okay. To October 8, 1951. Oh, and this wow. is the day Bruce MacArthur was born. Okay. In Lindsay, Ontario, which is about an hour and a half away from Toronto. Mm-hmm. His family were deeply religious, although his mom was Irish Catholic and his dad was Scottish Presbyterian, which caused huge arguments in the house. How they get together? No idea. That's literally a sin. Like but my my uh, granny and granddad, my granny was Protestant and my granddad was Catholic, so oh. she had to convert. Oh, really? Yeah, just to get married. So I don't know how this worked. But anyway, caused huge like shit in the household. Um, but Bruce would always side with his mom. Mm. He was an out-and-out mommy's boy mm-hmm. from day one, which led to a lot of, um, you know, his dad had a lot of contempt for him because he was always siding with, he was the fucking mommy's boy. So anyway, MacArthur had one sister, but his family was known to take in several foster children at the time, meaning there could be anywhere from eight to ten children in the farmhouse. All, well, not all of them, but more than likely, you know, from troubled backgrounds and blah, blah, blah. Now, there's nothing uh, so far, like this case is still pretty recent to say like that he was abused or anything as a child. Like I'm sure it will all come out in the next few years. But for now, there's he didn't he hasn't said anything too bad about like actually growing up from what I found anyway. But from an early age, this is not my wording. MacArthur's lack of traditional masculine traits was obvious. And this caused additional strife between himself and his father. So he was like kind of reminds me of me like <laughs> he just he wasn't into sports stuff like that he had like so basically he used a napkin instead of spitting yeah probably <laughs> you know and uh he had like won singing competitions and stuff like this so i think he if there had been a, a speech and drama program in the school in lindsay ontario 70 years ago you know he probably would have been a happy little boy but anyway in school um he was known as a teacher's pet and a tattletale and in my notes here, I have Ratso. <laughs> um, Nothing wrong with being a teacher's pet. Mm, I don't know. There's definitely something wrong with being a tattletale anyway. So as you can tell, people just didn't fucking like him. Uh, this is a direct quote from the racket online. Perhaps this was MacArthur's way of finding positive reinforcement for an auth- from an authority figure as he didn't find it at home, which... I mean, yeah, that could make perfect sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Again, he had more feminine traits than the other boys, like to sing, had won competitions. That was actually the only quote-unquote feminine trait that I could find. But again, it did drive a, a bigger wedge between in the relationship between him and his father. That's so petty. Yeah, and he has openly said that, like, you know, uh, his dad resented him and stuff like that. Because for, he sang? Uh, not specifically that, mm. but just for being a little more delicate than the rest of the That's boys so maybe. okay he was forced to hide his sexuality coming from a religious family and living in rural ontario back then in high school he met janice i'm assuming okay. not janice janice campbell who he ended up marrying at 23 after completing a program in general business in 1973 he got a job for eaton's in downtown toronto before the eaton center was actually built so the eaton centers remember that big uh huge mall in the like right in the center of downtown toronto yeah yeah so eaton's apparently have just been around for fucking donkey's years well so he was working for them when they were like i guess uh what was he doing there uh he i think was like a personal secretary for one of the bigger dudes or something like that okay i didn't actually write down what he was doing but it was 
something in the back office. Oh, okay. It. You know, when you said Janice, I thought of Janice from Friends. And now I'm thinking of this main character as uh, as Chandler in my head. <laughs> looking like Chandler. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you might not be far off. Because like, you know how they say like... Chandler was supposed to gay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I just said Chandler was supposed to gay. Um <laughs> All right. Anyway, where he was working was very close to the newly forming gay village cool. in Toronto, which is based around the Church and Wellesley intersection. It, I mean, I don't know how. I think there is a lot of like gay bars and stuff along in that area because every source that I was reading was like, oh, yeah, like it's the gay village. So I think that is just a. That's just what they call that's it. That's just what, yeah, what they actually call it. Oh. oh, and also same sex adult sexual behavior had just been decriminalized in Canada in 1969. So people were actually able to practice, like openly, like practice, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> able to celebrate their, like, <laughs> homosexuality, like, yeah. as much as they wanted. That's funny. Practice. Yeah. Wrong word. I've got priests on the brain. Anyway, he worked there until 1978 when he became a traveling salesman. So this is, again, from the racket online. And I have to agree with the guy, with the guy's logic, at least. He said he mainly sold socks and underwear, which is hilarious to me. This man was a traveling sock salesman. He would go door to door selling socks. Are you getting this? How does that even work? Good day, sir. Can I interest you in these socks? I don't think so. (laughs) I cannot imagine he sold a single pair of socks. I can't imagine he was very successful either. But I actually read into the job a little bit more and... He was actually traveling around to like large malls oh. and department stores, like selling his stuff to um, like actual fucking stores, not just people. Yeah. Well, in those times, uh, like door to door, door to door salesmen used to sell all kinds of shit like monkeys and exotic animals and shit. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Who was it who used to sell the monkeys again? Oh, fuck. I forgot. It was a serial killer, wasn't it? Yeah. Or a serial killer bought a monkey or something. See, if we were on YouTube, we could easily be like, oh, if you know who we're talking about, comment down below. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will be on YouTube, so comment down below. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so this gave him, like, he was just traveling all around Ontario, specifically, like, northeast Ontario. Oh, and here's where the parental relationship kind of takes a turn. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-70s, MacArthur's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor he was sent to a nursing home and MacArthur's mother took interest in another man. Oh. I'm not sure what that means, whether they were like just seeing each other, being friends or what. But anyway, MacArthur was very disappointed. And I don't know if he stopped talking to her altogether. I would imagine that she probably got a little too friendly with someone because he used that kind of verbiage insinuates so. Like, what if someone told you, hey, Adam, who says taking interest in this man? Yeah, obviously, I would take that straight away as <laughs> you're getting that dick. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I'm assuming she was like an older woman at this stage, you know? Like, yeah, she was probably just tired of him treating her like shit. That too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not condoning either way, I'm just speculating. Yeah, so anyway... His mother actually died in 1978, mm. and I don't think they ever, like, fully reconciled. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, and his dad died in 1981. 
in 1979 i'm sorry there, there is a lot of like dates in this especially mm-hmm. later on so anyway 1979 macarthur and his mother nope macarthur and his wife moved into a new house on ormond drive in oshawa which is another like probably about an hour and something outside of uh, toronto so they're moved back out of the city now and by 1981 he had a son and daughter now there was like conflicting reports on his children like one article said that he had a set a boy and a girl that in by 1981 and another set in the 80s and then another source said that he actually only had one uh boy and girl so i'm not 100 percent clear on that but i think it's just the two of them he became very active in the church presumably to you know oppress these homosexual urges that he was getting that's what one source said and his neighbors and people that he worked with at the time very like john wayne gacy you know he was always active with the community um you know i think i read somewhere that he might have dressed up as a clown for like some function or something again could be hearsay but yeah just super busy super kind of like btk as well actually with the church and you know, pillar of the community. He worked as a traveling salesman until 1993. And like I said, during this time, he had traveled all over northern Ontario and the GTA, the, the greater Toronto area, completely on his own. And experts now are trying to get the police to cross-reference missing person cases from all over Ontario to see if it, like, you know, relates to his MO and stuff like that. In the early 90s is when he apparently started having affairs with men and he came out to his wife, I think, in 1993. But they didn't break up straight away. I don't know that it was a happy marriage after that. Mm-hmm. I know that the I know that his son was like not impressed at all. Maybe the wife thought it was like a phase or something. Yeah, or maybe, maybe they just weren't that intimate, and she was like, "All right, I don't." Yeah. Because like they had been with each other since high school, so mm-hmm. who knows how romantic they ever were? You know, could have yeah. just been a functional a friendship thing. thing. Yeah. Anyway, when his time with the clothing industry came to an end in 1993, the couple started to face financial difficulty. Again, this is where some dates kind of get muddled up because it was between now and 1997 when they actually broke up that MacArthur's son, Todd, started obsessively making obscene phone calls to random women to the point where he actually got jail time. And, or sorry, he, he... uh, was arrested and i don't know if he was ever sentenced or what but the family had to bail him out that's a big red flag yeah and just remember that so in 1997 the marriage officially broke up and macarthur went back to toronto supposedly to you know explore his new found freedom and sexuality mm-hmm. there was apparently no gay scene in oshawa back then i don't know how it is now but the gay scene in toronto is like fantastic Oshawa, you said? Yeah, Oshawa is where him and the wife have been living. It's the biggest gay city in the world. What? I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's like, how did I not know this? (laughs) Uh, So anyway, he began frequenting the gay village and had a four-year affair. Sorry, a four-year relationship with another man and had also started seeing a psychiatrist to, um, I guess, just help him cope with this new life and also the fact that he had gone bankrupt and the divorce proceedings and all that and so the psychiatrist gave him 
um, some form of antidepressant. I'm not sure what. That's interesting how he like actively, like it seemed like his life was turning around for the better. Yeah, like if the rest of this stuff that's about to come didn't happen, I'd be like, oh, that's really nice that like, you know, this older man was able to finally pluck up the courage to come out and go and live his fucking dream. Yeah. So in 2001, he met a sex worker on a chat line. So I think it's like one of those really expensive sex chat lines that some of our listeners aren't even going to know ever existed, but it was just a number where you would call up, have like dirty talk with a random stranger. And that was it. And you get charged like phenomenal amount. I wonder if those things still exist. I mean, they, they probably do. Oh, wait, I think on the basement yard, they did an episode where they called one of those numbers and they were only able to play like a small snippet of it yeah that's right they were the one yeah but they were they were specific ones like from new york that had been like oh no they would just call like 1-800 tits oh. <laughs> and so like they would just make it up that's what they were saying so anyway maybe this was like 1-800 dick i honestly don't know <laughs> i'm also not really sure how they work or how this particular one worked because so it's like the direct line to a guy named richard <laughs> <laughs> yeah why do these people keep calling me i'm a dentist <laughs> but yeah so i'm not sure how any of them work honestly i've never had enough money to call one (laughs) (laughs) but this particular one he struck up like a kind of a relationship with this person and they actually met up in person a few times for sex so i don't know whether they had like a relationship or whether he was a paying client or what happened but anyway on uh halloween in 2001 just after noon the man called and invited MacArthur over to his apartment to check out his Halloween costume which I kind of want to see what this Halloween costume was but things took a turn and MacArthur actually struck the man several times from behind with a metal pipe and then fled the scene after he thought he had killed him what the fuck yeah so I don't know what happened in the meantime this dude is like uh unnamed you know he he's never come out publicly and and spoke about it i don't think but luckily he wasn't dead so when he woke up he managed to call 911 and he was taken into st michael's hospital he had suffered like severe injuries obviously to his head and body and needed several stitches to the back of his head and fingers which i thought like defensive defensive wounds yeah um as well as we've been in this yeah (laughs) (laughs) as well as six weeks of physiotherapy damn yeah so macarthur turned himself in after the attack Mm -hmm. pled guilty to charges of assault with the weapon and causing bodily harm although he claimed to have no memory of the incident or why he might have done it so he avoided prison due to a lack of victim statement because i think the guy just wanted to like wash his hands and just be like i don't you know it happened whatever yeah like let me move on with my life so there was no victim statement provided and a psychiatric report and pre-sentencing reports suggested that macarthur was unlikely to reoffend, and they also theorized that macarthur's behavior was caused by his use of poppers um like muscle relaxants or whatever while taking his prescribed anti-seizure medication his antidepressants so they said like you know oh well 
it was irresponsible, but maybe it was some weird fucking reaction. Yeah, reaction between the two drugs that he was taking, and you know, I'm sure it wasn't actually in his nature. Blah blah blah. Again, he just said that he blacked out. Can't remember anything. So he spent a year on house arrest, followed by a six-month curfew and three years probation, which a retired homicide detective from Toronto said was unenforceable. Unless a parolee comes into direct contact with the police, there's no way to actually control them. So the, all this house arrest and curfew and stuff was bullshit. Like just for just for writing something on a paper. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And this policeman said, "Now I don't know how strict." MacArthur took it but this policeman was saying like basically he could have been doing whatever the fuck he wanted nobody's gonna know unless he happened to get like you know caught for doing whatever so he was also banned from the church Wellesley area except for work or medical visits which again that police officer was like who's gonna enforce that yeah but I will say that he became known in the area after this and had like a few um like in the years after a few encounters with people who were like get the like you can't be in here like i fucking know who you are that's community y'all yeah and one thing i will say about toronto like there's millions of communities but there's like a huge amount of people looking out for each other Mm -hmm. from my experience which is really really nice uh he also had to stay at least 33 feet which isn't very far from his victim's home or work was not allowed to spend time with male prostitutes don't think anybody legally is <laughs> forbidden to possess firearms for 10 years not to purchase possess or consume drugs without a prescription specifically not allowed to possess poppers and had to submit his dna to a database and he was compelled to take psychological and psychiatric counseling including anger management so i don't know if that was enforced or whether it was just like you really need to go <laughs> yeah and get checked out A report conducted before MacArthur's sentencing concluded that his risk of violent behavior was extremely minimal and, quote, the subject upholds a pro-social attitude and is willing to undertake correctional intervention. Even the prosecution stated on the record that, quote, we are not alleging a worst-case scenario where Mr. MacArthur was roaming the streets as a violent predator, unquote. In 2014, he was granted a record suspension on the conviction and it was subsequently expunged from his record, meaning it would not appear in any criminal background checks. Oh, what the fuck? Yep. That's bullshit. Yeah. You know how hard... Man, that's <laughs> fucking bullshit. Yeah, so anyway, back to 2002. While the assault case was still going on in courts, MacArthur had registered with Recon a gay dating website for dudes specifically into BDSM, where his profile stated that he was interested in submissive men. He was also active on Silver Daddy's Man Jam, Grinder, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squared, Crowler, and more. <laughs> Why'd you rush through those, man? I just thought they were funny names. <laughs> so that was, once again, Silver Daddy's Man Jam, <laughs> Grinder, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squirt, Growler, and more. And actually, just a real quick uh, story about Grinder. While I was working in Toronto, one of my good friends up there was in the changing room in the warehouse part of the building where we worked. And we often got temps in just for the day, and it would always be like different temps. It was rarely the same dude. Anyway, this guy walks up to him, 
and he's like hey man i know you from somewhere like oh man you're so familiar and and he my friend was like uh like you know i, I get around like you know I'm, I'm always downtown whatever and the guy's like no 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 i definitely know you from somewhere comes back a few minutes later and he's like i got it grinder we hooked up or we met on grinder we were talking on there for ages <laughs> and my friend's like oh like you know no, no 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 like it wasn't me it wasn't me but this dude was convinced that he had met him on grinder and we all thought it was great <laughs> anyway 2007 2008 he moved into the 19th floor apartment at Leeside Towers in Thorncliffe Park, which is about five kilometers or three miles from Church and Wellesley. He became fairly well known among the community and had a reputation for BDSM and rough sex. In 2011, MacArthur told an acquaintance named Robert James that he had been asked to leave a coffee house, which caused him to lose his temper and knock all the glasses off the counter in a rage. So this is the kind of person that he is. And there, we will be posting pictures of him. He's an older white man. And in some of his pictures, you can see how red he gets. James apparently told MacArthur then. He was like, look, I've heard other stories about you. I don't know how this came up. But he said he wasn't comfortable being around him. Because of all the things that he had heard. And MacArthur turned red. And started screaming um, about you fucking F words. I'm, I'm not comfortable saying it always oh. telling yeah. <laughs> it just occurred to me what those f words were and i'm like but you just said the f word yeah sorry <laughs> you fucking derogatory term for gay people ah uh, got it <laughs> telling stories about me uh you're just and you're just like the rest of them you think i'm crazy going into this fucking like just having a tantrum basically in the middle of wherever it was what an asshole he brought this on himself oh yeah he's a piece of shit but anyway by now he's a fairly like well-established like landscaper like small time one of the dudes who worked for him said like he's just a gardener mm-hmm. you know but like obviously his his business title is going to be landscaper but it was always him another older white man who he appeared to be romantically involved with and a day laborer typically of southern asian or middle eastern descent so it was usually him the older man where like he was the regular and then they would have whatever like some temper or something people did comment that they thought it was weird that he carried his tools with him all the time but i personally don't think that that was strange like he had one car and it was a dodge caravan it was his personal vehicle and his work vehicle like i keep my tools in my car when i need to you know what i mean so uh, i just read that in a few different things saying like it was so weird but honestly i think that's probably the least strange thing about this whole case his clientele were mostly wealthy older women and due to toronto's weather they have seasonal work so obviously being a landscaper you can't work in the colder months so during winter he was actually a mall santa in scarborough's agen court mall i think that's how you pronounce it that's crazy yeah so i had texted my friend again uh, a different friend not the one-off grinder (laughs) <laughs> and uh i asked him i was like oh yo have you ever did you ever go here because he's from scarborough and he was like yeah i did and i like sent him a picture there's a picture of him dressed up in the santa suit and all i was like this dude was there for like eight years every christmas you sat on his lap yeah or someone you know did <laughs> yeah but yeah apparently like he really enjoyed it as well 
the Santa thing. And I don't know whether that like one random mention of him dressing up as a clown just came from this. You know, people kind of running with it like some tabloid or something. Yeah. But this is a fact. He was a Santa Claus. He was also a gardener. So yeah, the Santa Claus Strangler, maybe. Mm. 2014. Remember Todd with those pesky phone calls? Yeah. He's still at it, right? This is, like, he's a grown-ass man now. Mm -hmm. He was sentenced to 14 months in jail purely for this. Harassing people, obscene phone calls. I I don't know whether it was, like, one person or multiple women, whatever. But anyway, when he was released on bail, he was ordered to stay with his father in his Toronto's apartment, in his Toronto apartment. And he was to assist MacArthur's landscaping business. A former friend of Todd's visited one night and discovered the wall of MacArthur's bathroom was decorated with photos of naked men with erections. He said most of the men appeared to be East Indian and that Todd said that they were men who his father knew. MacArthur didn't hide the fact, laughing over it at breakfast. I'm not sure about any more details than that, but that has to be... Like, you're not going to do that with your son... Yeah. You know, like, just weird, Carrie. I think that that's very strange. Yeah, that's very strange. Like, you're not going to have all your past and present sexual partners, like, photographed and plastered on the bathroom wall for anybody to come in and check them out in all their glory. In the bathroom? (laughs) Yeah, like. And the guy was pissed that his friend didn't want to, like, stay friends with him. Oh, well, it didn't mention anything about. Oh, it's like, dude, like, I don't even want to use your bathroom. It's bad. Yeah, like, what goes on in there? But yeah, another interesting little tidbit. This was still going on as recently as 2018 with reports of Todd leaving an Oshawa courthouse in relation to breach of his probation. So the son is also a fucking sexual predator. And I'm pretty sure he's still... Like, he's not locked up or anything at the minute. Mm -hmm. I really was trying to find out more about him. But that's the most recent sighting I could find. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, Project Houston was set up in November of 2012 after the disappearance of, and I'm very sorry, most of these dudes have complex names. Um, and I'm probably not going to pronounce them all properly or any of them properly. I'm trying my best and apologies to anyone who I upset. So, after the disappearance of Skandaraj, Skanda, Navaratnam, so Skanda for short. Uh, by June of 2013, the task force had linked two other similar missing persons cases. Abdul Bashir uh, Faizi, Bashir for short, and Majid Kayan, uh, also known as Hamid. All three were middle-aged immigrants of South Asian origin and had disappeared between 2010 and 2012. MacArthur was linked to two of the missing men through dating apps and an anonymous tip led police to interview him on November 11th, 2013. MacArthur told police that he regularly interacted with Skanda at the Black Eagle but denied a relationship. He also told him told them that he had actually employed Hamid and did have a sexual relationship with him but he had broken it off himself. Nothing came of this but he conveniently bought a new car two weeks after the interview. Just that was mentioned. 
Project Houston unfortunately ended with no evidence connecting the disappearances or even that a crime had been committed. They never found bodies. They were just missing people at this stage. Andrew Kinsman disappeared from Cabbage Town on June 26, 2017, the day after the Toronto Pride Festival. Cabbage Town is another part of downtown Toronto, or I would call it downtown Toronto anyway. It's remember where St. Lawrence's Market is? Mm-hmm. So that area there is Cabbage Town. Mm. Uh, it's actually my favorite place, I think, in Toronto. Just putting that in there, I was I, I was in Toronto once. Um, <laughs> but by June uh, or by June twenty eighth, some of his friends uh, grew concerned that he wasn't like texting back and stuff. So they gained access to his apartment and found it completely untouched, nothing out of the ordinary. ordinary except that his 17-year-old cat was without food and water. All his prescription medication and stuff like that was still there, and it was just weird. He was known to be extremely stable and responsible. He was openly gay, unlike other missing men. He was a bartender, a superintendent of his building, and a long-time volunteer with Toronto People with AIDS Foundation. So, again, just totally out of character for him to just up and disappear like he sounds like the busiest fucking person (laughs) ever you know he was also usually very active on like social media and stuff like that but his phone was conveniently off the day he disappeared he was six foot four and weighed in at 220 pounds was very street savvy is what they said which just like the police were saying so he was like extremely unlikely to be a victim of random violence purely based off his his appearance his appearance and i mean it's that part of Toronto was very friendly. Yeah. Anyway, you know, even the homeless people are nice there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, his his friends reported him missing, and then he he has the best friend, I have to say, particularly um, this guy Greg Downer, which unlike his name, he is not a downer. Uh, he's a fucking superhero, and if he ever hears this, I want him to know that, like this guy went above and beyond. So he founded and moderated Facebook groups. Find Andrew Kinsman and Toronto's Missing Rainbow Community, which had about 600 members each, which I'm assuming there was a lot of the same people in each. These groups shared info about the missing men and organized volunteers for search parties and raised public awareness with missing persons posters. These people were so committed. Um, They spread another picture on social media, uh, at first showing 12 and then... 11 missing men but the info is outdated and five of the men had already been found alive and well a sixth was found dead but it was ruled a suicide among the rest of the pictures were the three guys from project houston uh, and also salim essen who had disappeared on april 14th 2017 this led police uh, to create a new task force at the end of July 2017, called Project Prism, to investigate the disappearances of Kinsman and Essen and to also look for any links with the unsolved disappearances from Project Houston. Greg Downer organized a community safety meeting on August 1st, in which the police informed people about the new task force and thanked them for the abundance of information that they had received from the, the gay community on a whole. Uh, the missing rainbow community provided strategies for staying safe when me- meeting people from dating apps and they were just really buckling down again as a community um 
Downer, Kinsman's friend, also contacted dating apps in order for them to provide an option for users to allow their data to be accessed by police in the event of them going missing. Um, because most of the dating apps were based in the US, the Canadian police had to, like, there was all sorts of bullshit trying to get access uh, from the data. So, yeah. Jumping Downer, yeah, so this guy, Downer, um, like changed all that you know that's really cool yeah that's what i'm saying like the dude was on top of it uh they also set up safety hotlines uh for those who didn't want to who didn't want to approach the police themselves there's a huge amount of homophobic stuff going on between the toronto police department and the gay community stretching back to the 70s just like you know the less dead all that um that played a huge part in this they they think I'm not going into that because I'm just trying to give the facts of the story. Otherwise, we'd be here for fucking days because there's a lot, which we will get back into a little bit later. Anyway, safety hotlines are set up. Volunteers searched the Toronto Ravine system weekly. And by the end of October, they searched daily until early December when they couldn't search anymore because of the weather. Uh, it was just snow and ice. Again, volunteers out in the freezing cold, just trying to find anything that they could. According to Detective Itzinga, the leader of Project Prism, police found a single word on Kinsman's calendar on the day he disappeared. June 26th, Bruce. They also found CCTV footage outside his residence showing a person matching his description getting into a red vehicle. The footage was described as tiny and fleeting, no license plate and no clear view of the driver, but one chrome siding on the vehicle identified it as a 2004 Dodge Caravan. So there were 6,000 red Dodge Caravans in Toronto. Only five of those were registered to Bruce's and only one of those was a 2004 model and that one was registered to Bruce MacArthur. By late August, early September, they matched the vehicle to CCTV footage from MacArthur's residence. But when they went to the residence, the van was no longer there. So at this time, Police obtained orders for the release of data from Google, Rogers, Bell, TELUS, Royal Bank, Manulife Bank. Uh, Rogers, Bell and TELUS are communication uh, companies up there. They'd be like T-Mobile and shit like that. Uh, tracking warrants had been obtained for vehicles and phones. And on October 3rd, 2017, the police found MacArthur's old Dodge Caravan. 43 miles or 73 kilometers outside of toronto in a junkyard called dom's auto parts luckily still fully intact they took it in for analysis and found traces of blood which was identified as kinsman and other dna um there was semen and seminal fluid found uh which was matched to essen so in november they brought cadaver dogs to a Mallory Crescent residence in the Leaside neighborhood of Toronto where MacArthur looked after the owner's yard in exchange for storage space in the garage and they found nothing but police installed a camera to monitor the garage. So the police obtained a general warrant on December 4th allowing them to enter MacArthur's apartment covertly where they cloned his hard drive and also his key fob into the apartment building which helped them to put together a timeline for the day of Kinsman's disappearance. Like obviously I wouldn't have thought of that. I'm not a fucking policeman. But I never thought that you know your key fob actually registers anything. Other than you 
coming in and out of the building. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was able to say, well, he wasn't in the building here. He punched out here, which I, my mind was blown. They still couldn't link the cases, however, and I think they were just trying to wait to get as much information as they could before they actually got him because, you know, rather than risk him getting off on anything. So on January 17th, a forensic analysis of MacArthur's hard drive recovered deleted files which contained post-mortem pictures of his victims. Officers were put on round-the-clock surveillance of MacArthur and were told that he should be immediately arrested if seen alone with anyone. The very next day, he was arrested with John. The owners of the Mallory Crescent residence, where he used the garage, were barred from their home on January 18th also. Cadaver dogs were brought in again and they took a strong interest in large planter boxes which had frozen to the ground so they had to bring in heaters to thaw them out before they could uh, remove them and bring them to the coroner's office. Detective Itzinga announced that they were investigating an alleged serial killer who had concealed evidence by burying it across the city. They said there was hundreds of officers involved and 30 properties that needed to be searched. On January 29th, Police announced that they had found dismembered skeletal remains of at least three people in two out of 12 large planters taken from this residence. Even though the remains hadn't been identified, the police had gathered enough evidence to charge MacArthur with three additional counts of first-degree murder in the presumed deaths of Majid Kayan, Sarush Mahmoudi and Dean Lisowick. So Majid Kayan was 58. He was believed to have had led two separate lives one with his family and one with and one in the village kayan was an afghan immigrant and the youngest of many siblings he had a wife and children and also frequented many of the bars in the village and actually kept an apartment in the area so he was completely like two lives his son reported him missing in the autumn of 2012 when he could no longer reach him MacArthur told police that he had employed him as a landscape helper and claimed to have had a brief sexual relationship with him. This is a quote from his brother. I still have not comprehended how this crime happened. It has consumed the majority of my thoughts. The police believe Kayan was killed around October 18th, 2012. Sarush Mahmoudi, 50, was a refugee from Iran and reported missing by his wife. In a statement to the court, she called him her soulmate and said that she had been overwhelmed by grief at his brutal slaying. Police believe Mahmoudi was killed in August 2015 and found a coat with his DNA on it in MacArthur's van during their investigation. Dean Lysowick, or Lysowick, 47, was MacArthur's sixth victim, but unlike the others killed by MacArthur, he was never reported missing to police. The 47-year-old was often found staying in homeless shelters in Toronto and worked in the sex trade. In a, statement re- in a statement read to the court, his daughter said, I will always have to live with knowing that I will never have a relationship with my father. His cousin told the court that his face lit up whenever he spoke about his daughter and that he had hoped to get his life together so he could do more for her. He also kept in touch with his parents until his struggles with mental illness landed him on the streets. But his uncle told the court that even then he would still occasionally send cards to his mother that had been quote, searched out carefully for their, for their expressions of love. He was a loving and caring man, his uncle Jerry Montanti said. He was not alone in the world. His name was added in February 2018 to the Toronto Homeless Memorial, which remembers those who have died as a result of homelessness in the city. 
He is believed to have been killed sometime around late April 2016. MacArthur kept some of Lissawick's jewellery, which police later found in his apartment, according to the court documents. Criminologist and Western University professor Michael Arnfield said that the alleged method of disposal suggested a sophisticated killer who had developed who had developed his craft and as most serial killers begin in their 20s the crimes could go back several decades on february 8th police announced that they had found three more people in the planters from this same property andrew kinsman was one of these people so again andrew kinsman was 49 quote he wanted to make the world a better place for those struggling to survive his sister karen coles told the court in february his sister described him as someone who, under his gruff demeanour, cared deeply about other people and who championed social justice issues. An extraordinary, quirky and caring individual. Salim Essen, 44, originally from Turkey, Essen came to Canada in 2013. He disappeared from his home near the village in April 2017. Quote, he was very friendly, kind-hearted, open, independent-minded and curious, passionate about learning new things, gardening, exploring new places, and meeting new people, Essence Brothers said in a family statement in June. His tender and kind humanity came before everything else. The court heard in February that Essence spoke to his best friend every day, and when he did not reply to a text, his friend reported him missing. Essence had struggled in the past with substance abuse, but friends told the court during MacArthur's sentencing hearing that he had reached a turning point and hoped to help others in their recovery. He was described as a nature lover who enjoyed managing a cafe, who had a passion for sociology and philosophy, and who was generous and selfless with his friends. Many told the court they are still struggling to come to terms with his murder. MacArthur kept a notebook owned by Essen, which police later found in his apartment. The owners of the property moved back in on, the, I, I think it was a weekend, but between February 10th and 11th and requested that police leave the crime scene tape up to deter reporters who had already been harassing them apparently. The searches of the Leaside home and MacArthur's apartment made up the largest forensic investigation conducted by the Toronto police. In MacArthur's bedroom, officers found a bag with duct tape, a surgical glove, rope, zip ties, a bungee cord and syringes as well as DNA belonging to multiple victims inside uh, inside MacArthur's van and on a fur coat. February 23rd, MacArthur was charged with a sixth count of first-degree murder in the death of Skandaraj Navaratnam, again recovered from the Leaside residence. So Skandaraj, or Skanda, Navaratnam was 40, and he was actually MacArthur's first first victim, at least that they can prove. The 40-year-old had moved to Canada from Sri Lanka in the 1990s as a refugee and settled into life in the city's gay village. He has been described as someone who was very social and jovial and always ready to help out his friends. One friend said that he was an educated and curious man with a strong interest in global affairs and who was unbeatable at Scrabble. His laugh was just ridiculous, Jody Becker, a bartender at Zippers and close friend of Navaratnam's, told the Toronto Star after he went missing. If Skanda started laughing, everybody started laughing, even if it wasn't funny. (laughs) 
When he disappeared in September 2010, abandoning a new puppy alone in his apartment, his friends called police. According to court documents, police found a silver bracelet belonging to Navaratnam in MacArthur's bedroom during their investigation. Apparently he had known MacArthur since the early 2000s and they had dated. April 11th, MacArthur was charged with the murder of Abdul Bashir Faizi, who was 42. Faizi's disappearance in December of 2010, along with that of Navaratnam and Majid Kayan, who went missing in 2012, prompted Toronto Police to launch Missing Persons Task Force Project Houston. Faizi was married and a father of two. He divided his life between the Toronto suburb of Brampton, where he lived, and his social life in the gay village downtown. His family reported him missing, but because they didn't know of his ties to the village, his disappearance largely flew under the radar of Toronto's LGBT community. During MacArthur's sentencing hearing, his wife said in a statement that his daughters, who were aged 6 and 10 when he disappeared, often still cry for their father. She said she is struggling to support the family. Faizi's car was found abandoned near a home that that MacArthur had access to at the time of the killing, court documents state. April 16th, MacArthur was charged with the murder of Krishna Kumar Kanagaratnam, 37. This one's actually the saddest one, I think. Police said his name had not come from the many tips generated by the release of his post-mortem photograph, but that he had been identified with help from an undisclosed international agency. He came to Canada on the MV Sunsea in 2010, a ship carrying almost 500 Sri Lankan asylum seekers that arrived in Canadian waters that summer. His refugee claim was de- was denied and he was ordered to be deported. Police and family did not report him missing because they assumed he was in hiding. He was close with his family and talked to them regularly, the court heard. Family, rem- family members described in court statements the shock and pain they felt upon learning, uh, upon learning of his fate. Police have said that it is not clear how he came in contact with MacArthur, given that he had no clear ties to Toronto's gay village he had last had contact with his family in august 2015 and police believe that he had been killed between september 3rd and december 14 2015 of 600 cold cases being looked into for further investigation 15 were linked to the church in wellesley area and the general profile of the victims were similar dating from 1975 to 1997 on january 29th 2019 bear in mind this is like last year MacArthur pleaded guilty to each of the eight first-degree murder charges that he was facing, ending the possibility of any trial. So all of MacArthur's victims died of ligature strangulation. The murder weapon was a metal bar that had a rope attached to it to fashion a garrote. This created a mechanism whereby rotating the bar would turn the knot, increasing pressure on the neck, because you can tighten and loosen it and watch them yeah and out of consciousness there's more control in that yeah it's a whole um process on his computer they found photos of the victims naked and either unconscious or dead or in some photos the victims still had the weapon around their neck he would pose the bodies in a fur coat or fur hat with unlit cigars in their mouths the photos indicated that the victims were restrained and sexually assaulted before death the photos were organized into folders labeled with each victim's name. John had his own folder waiting for him. That's scary. Yeah. 
So he would actually download pictures from the victim's social media before he'd even killed them. And just have them ready. And like I said, John's pictures were in his folder. He committed these murders murders. He committed these murders while his son and roommate were still living with him, and possibly even while they were there. Certainly the bodies would have been in the room while they were there. He then he then dismembered the victims. And we're not sure where he carried this out, but there is evidence that to suggest that uh, he would either cut them up and let them decompose somewhere and then he would plant them or he would just let them kind of decompose then cut them up and then plant them we're not sure which i'm sure again this is a super recent case so i'm sure we'll get a lot more information in the coming years i forgot to ask this what's a planner's box oh just a big like flower um like a long flower pot yeah like like a uh, a raised flower bed. Okay. So, yeah, a raised flower bed, we'll say. Anyway, so June 20th, 2016, MacArthur and an unidentified man whom he'd met through a dating app were masturbating each other in the back of MacArthur's van in a McDonald's restaurant parking lot in North York. Just classy. a classy night out, baby. <laughs> um, anyway... <laughs> So yeah, they were they were in the van doing the thing. Uh, MacArthur allegedly began throttling the man, like just randomly started fucking choking him or whatever. The man broke free and said that he would report what happened to the police. Sources then vary, with MacArthur following the man to a police station or possibly driving to a Scarborough police station while the man phoned the police. MacArthur either claimed it was the man who had choked him. Or that the man had asked to be choked, then panicked and fled. According to one source, MacArthur was placed under arrest and taken from 41 Division in Scarborough to 32 Division in North York, where the investigation continued. No occurrence report was filed and MacArthur was not charged. Homicide investigators only became aware of this alleged incident after MacArthur's arrest when that man, who was the victim here, actually came forward to say, like... How did you guys not know this? Mm. The victim called 911 after he had escaped while MacArthur went to the police. And uh, while MacArthur went to the police and said that the incident was consensual. So he was let go because this is where the homophobic bullshit comes in. The police officer was obviously like, oh my God, two men touching each other. Yeah, I like, don't want to like, Yeah, I don't want to get involved the... in case I catch the gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whatever. Um, so anyway, that police officer who handled this case i didn't get too into it i just know that he was in a lot of trouble he got suspended and stuff like that recently so i don't know whether he was allowed back in the force or what but like they need obviously to make an example of him because this is such a huge case but also because i do think they're actively trying to show uh the gay community of toronto that they're on their side as well you know yeah. like that was, that stuff is all in the past hopefully anyway so, February 8th, 2019, Justice McMahon sentenced MacArthur to life imprisonment with no parole eligibility for 25 years. McMahon described the, the crimes as pure evil and stated that MacArthur showed no evidence of remorse and would have continued killing had he not been apprehended. This is the only information I got from the Toronto Sun. 
but they noted that MacArthur is overweight with type 2 diabetes and is unlikely to live that long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shade. Yeah. So, April 11th, 2019, allegedly Bruce MacArthur was assaulted in prison and hospitalized, the police source said. It happened at the Millhaven Institution, a maximum security facility located east of the village of Bath in Ontario. So, yeah, that's where this story ends for now. But he's obviously not liked in prison. Yeah. Maybe he's a tattletale in prison too. Oh, yeah. So, it sounds like he's getting his comeuppance somewhat. Well, I don't know if, I mean, if he's allowed to parole in 25 years. That's a pretty shit, like, sentencing. You know uh, what I'm saying? He's allowed to apply for parole in 25 years. But you have to remember that he was born in 1951. So, he'll be... 93 when he becomes eligible for parole mm. and he's overweight and has type 2 diabetes so it's unlikely <laughs> According to happen to the sun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks for that input toronto son <laughs> so yeah bruce MacArthur. that's crazy yeah and we have a lot of pictures but yeah because it's such a modern case as well uh, or such a recent development there's lots of pictures and um Todd MacArthur, you're a piece of shit too. Just yeah. like your dad. Leave those random ladies alone. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably end up covering him at some point. Yeah, by the sounds of things. Yeah. yeah. And like that, if they ever do manage to um, link him to like all those missing people cases from the 70s. So just real quick, the documentary that I referenced earlier on, The Fifth Estate mm-hmm. is the name of their channel on YouTube. And the docu- like the one of the videos I watched was I think like twenty minutes or something, but they definitely outline um the struggle that the LGBTQ community in Toronto faced in the seventies, like there was riots against um just the decriminalization of gay sexual behavior or homosexuality basically. And from then on there was a known serial killer in the seventies and eighties in the gay community in toronto so there's a huge amount of um information out there on that it's not something that i wanted to cover because like i said we would have been here for days and only now are they actually looking back into it so hopefully we'll have answers in the coming years yeah so that's my story that's a really good story we'll probably end up seeing a lot of uh like the emergence of other crimes to be looked into like um like they'll probably see that there's more missing people or like cold cases and then they'll like serial killers or just random murders will start coming out the woodworks yeah i mean especially if particularly with macarthur Mm -hmm. since he traveled all over like yeah i mean he covered a lot of yeah, Space. like Ontario's pretty fucking big. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That was a really good story, man. Thanks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how I talk sometimes. <laughs> All right. All right. So this is gonna be a pretty lengthy episode, um, but that's okay, cause you like it. Yeah. And if you don't, convince yourself that you like it. Just let's play pretend. Okay. Give it to me. All right. 
So, first of all, I want to thank one of our biggest supporters of Weekly Creep for sending me the article that led me to go down a very bizarre rabbit hole. Sadia, we love you very much. Yes, we do. (laughs) All right. So, our strange story, or rather tradition, takes us to Thailand. There is a spooky tradition here called Kumantong or Kumantong. Kumantong? <laughs> I'm going to pronounce it Kumantong. Okay. Okay. Because I don't know anybody who speaks this language. That No, that's that's fine. I just butchered eight poor victims' names mm. unintentionally, but I'm sure I did. So I want to plug it into Google Speech or speak, but I think though it'll probably butcher it. It'll just pronounce the it same. in English anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Human tongue. So do you know what that means? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> so the term translates to golden boy. Oh, me. <laughs> so it's actually the practice of adopting or harnessing the spirit of an unborn fetus for personal gain and benefits. While it's still in the mother? Or like... No. Well, well, okay. So, let me... So, they're harnessing the soul of an unborn fetus. Or unborn baby, which is a fetus. Yeah. Yeah. So, when the fetus dies, that's what they're trying to harness. Oh, okay. Okay. I get you. Yeah. It is common for any one person or family to have a collection of fetus spirits in their possession. This practice of their personal fetus spirit collection is mainstream, showing up in autobiographical books from celebrities, uh, magazines. You can even purchase figurines that are inhabited with fetus spirits on eBay. I'm sure you're going to get into this, but is this like... um... Would it be like a positive thing or is it? Depends on who you ask. Okay. Because say, for example, like your granny dies or, or yeah, like say your mother did like have a baby that she didn't, uh, that, that, that was miscarried. And like, if something goes right, they say, oh, sure, that's, you know, Bobby looking after you or something. Um, Possibly. And maybe not. Okay. Very clear. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it could be, yeah, you could explain it that way. But it's, um, if, if that were to happen, there are certain measure, measures that you'd have to take in order to um, thank that spirit, you know? But like, okay. like you're getting... We're getting ahead of ourselves ahead of here. Ourselves. Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, originally, the term referred to exclusively fetuses, but now the term is an umbrella term for born babies that have died as babies and small children who have also died. Okay. Okay. This tradition originated from a 19th century novel titled Kun Cheng Kun Fan or Kun Fan. I know it well. Kun Fein was a big shot soldier who was tight with the king and he earns favor with a powerful sorcerer. 
The sorcerer likes him so much that he gives him his daughter for marriage. Fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> so they get married. But as time passes, Confane and the sorcerer have a lot of falling outs. And the sorcerer tells his daughter to poison Confane. Confane found, finds out and cuts out his baby from his wife's womb out of anger. Whoa. He takes the fetus, covers it with sacred cloth covered in prayers, like the prayers are written on the cloth. Okay. Builds a fire at a temple and grills it. As he's grilling it, he chants prayers until the fetus is only a skin-covered skeleton. At the end of the ritual, Confane can communicate with the ghost of his child and becomes a spirit guide for his father. Wow. That is one hardcore story. This is from Thailand? Like the, yes. The stories, the book, rather? Yes. Okay. Wow. Ancient manuscripts have additional steps of how to make your own kumen fong, and they're still in existence, these manuscripts. They say things like how the ritual has to be done before dawn, and like it has to be in a cemetery. You have to paint the fetus skeleton with lacquer, so the gold leaf that you have to apply afterwards sticks. Kumen thong are traditionally made by men who are well-versed in magic and ghost manipulation, like the the, soldier. the, the main character of that story, Confang. So those like um, instructions seem very like practical and literal. Like if they're talking like, oh, you got to lacquer the bones. Yeah, they're they're very particular. Yeah. Well. Yep. Kind of like a how-to. Um, today, what is more commonly used as f what is more commonly used are figurines and amulets that are supposed to like in inhabit or um house these spirits. Sorry. Buddhist temples in Thailand sell these wooden figurines of little boys. But the most sought after are figurines made out of demolished Buddhist temples because it's believed that the building's materials would have soaked up the power of monks who would have been in these temples chanting prayers all day and night. These figurines are made with the intention to house spirits who volunteer to help a prospective family or individual that adopts it. You can also get kumantong from spirit mediums who specialize in imbuing spirits into objects for 100 bots, which is the currency there, mm -hmm. and well into the thousands. Some who have acquired these spirits have said that they have been sought out by the spirit themselves in dreams. These particular kumantong are said to be at the top, top of the hierarchy because there is a hierarchy of these souls. Okay. Like, um, I guess, classes, you know? Yeah, so they, but they're almost godlike or deity. -like. The highest class is well. is very like lofty in that sense. So the term kumantong is an umbrella term for different kinds of child spirits, as I mentioned before. The ones who sit on top are said to be instructed by the heavens to join a family. They're specifically called kumantep. Okay. okay. These kinds of spirits cannot be commanded in the way that Kumen Fry or Kumen Fai can. Instead, you can only ask them general things like protection and good luck and prosperity, things like that. 
very like general phrases. Mm-hmm. The type of kumanthong who are below that, uh, they're called kumanfai, who are the wandering souls of children, um, fetuses, infants, uh, and they're seeking a new family in order to earn good karma for the next life because Thailand is mostly Buddhist. Okay. So they believe in reincarnation. Right. Lastly, there are Kumin Fry, who are souls of, you know, fetuses or babies, small children, who have died violently. Practitioners of black magic make powerful figurines by anointing them with fat extracted from a dead child. Jesus. Um, acquiring or possessing the materials to make these kinds of figurines is highly illegal because of supply, but because of supply and demand in the black market, it still happens. These spirits are likely captured by force of the practitioners in order to control them and use them for evil shit. Kumin fry are the most powerful and if not taken care of correctly can be dangerous. And I'll get into what I mean by taking care of. Okay. Okay. So there's several ways that you can make um, cumin fry. Like this one, like you extract the fat from a dead child or a dead fetus or a dead baby. Yeah. You can also there. You can also like hold a candle next to a dying woman, and that wax that drips, like that wax, can be used to make these figurines and trap a cumin fry which is like they have like lots of different ways like sort of um um elaborate ways that are sort of like the same thing you know like it's very macabre in the way that these materials that are supposed to work are obtained you know it all has to do with death basically okay when dealing with those kinds of spirits yeah so how to take care of these child spirits or kumantong. You're supposed to offer them sweet beverages, milk, toys. You can keep these figurines on a shelf or a shrine. Uh, shrines are common in Thailand for these for kumantong. If they no long if families or individuals no longer require the help of these spirits, they may be taken back to temples. The kumantep specifically though they're partial to water or other beverages. You wouldn't offer them specific things like um, toys and candy and stuff like that. Um, but the others you can. Okay. If the kumantong are a part of a communal shrine, the kumantong is said to assist the community as a whole. So that's like the give or take relationship of these um, spirits, right? So you, they're normally in figuring form. You put them on a shrine, generally, or if it's in a household. I, I guess you can have a shrine inside a household as well. Yeah. And you you sort of, like, um, give them offerings for their services to you. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's that. <laughs> so the benefits of having these child spirits, and I use that term loosely because I'm still unsure how I feel about this topic. Okay. Um, protection. Some people use the these spirits as companionship or prosperity. There's uh, different 
benefits of having these. Yeah. Basically, you get to take advantage of the their supernatural powers, you know. They're said to see and hear 20,000 kilometers from the home that they stay in and can alert their owners of danger. In turn, these spirits who are waiting to, re- to be reborn are building up good karma by offering their assistance to their adoptive families or communities. Okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah. It's actually similar to uh, even like Catholic uh, practices like going in, lighting a candle for a specific saint or whatever, you know, like at the shrine for, they would have, in the churches they would have like, oh, this is St. Michael or this is the Virgin Mary or whatever. Yeah. Characteristics of these Kumantong. These children spirits can be mischievous and could play tricks on members of the family or the children of a household. They each have their own personalities, individual will, power to leave or enter the care of their adoptive family. You're supposed to discipline these spirits by likely stri- lightly striking the figure with a wooden rod and sternly telling them to stop their shenanigans. <laughs> okay. Or we would just sh- uh, chastise them and be like, quit doing that shit. Yeah. From what I read, they always have to be addressed or taken into account when making decisions or doing anything. Like, if you're going to a friend's house, you have to say, hey, I'm going to a friend's house. You can't come. Or, yeah, you can come or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's Dave. You don't like Dave. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, hey, I'm having a friend over. Please don't fuck with them. And depending on how obedient they are, they can either be like, all right, cool. Or, fuck that. I'm going to throw a tantrum and fuck some shit up. People who own these spirits see them as their own children and often often refer to them as daughter or son and themselves as guardians. You may ask, how can they call themselves guardians if they were only acquired to serve the household? Well, you have to look at the role and responsibilities children have in Thailand and even in Buddhist communities. I should add this disclaimer that I don't mean that all Buddhists or all people in Thailand have these views. There are exceptions as with anything, Buddhist communities in this region do not see children as inherently innocent, but as spirits who have several lifetimes of karma, and in that sense, aren't born, aren't different from adults. Also, they have a responsibility to serve the family unit in gratitude for being allowed to be born. Basically, this kid has a responsibility to do everything that I ask of it as a form of repayment to me. Right. It's sort of like like this this kid's like a commodity, you know? And it's it it goes along with the school of thought of just like you know, you um, should be grateful for what you have. Yeah. Okay. So, as I mentioned before, um they have a responsibility to serve the family like a debt. This is in line with old way an old way of thinking and practice of having children in order to use them for labor, whether It is with doing chores around the house, lessening the burden of parents, or helping rear their siblings. This school of thought can be applied to lots of regions, though, in my opinion. Like, I was just watching a video today, I think it was, like, in Indonesia, that uh, because of the pandemic, uh, unemployment in Indonesia is on the rise, and a lot of um, villages that are, like, already, like, poor villages, um, families are saying like if they have daughters they're saying oh well shit like we have to 
mar- we have to marry off our daughter now because we can't like her. support her. Um, she needs to make her own family and all this other stuff. So yeah. they're like forcing these child. These, basically, they're still children to marry any fucking just to get them out of the house. Like, just to get them out of yeah. the house, and you know, women don't have rights in that part of the country like you know the privileges that we have here um so they don't have a choice in the matter and so they're sent to go marry like some random ass dude and again the family doesn't care if this dude's a wife beater or whatever or how old this bastard is as far as they're concerned right so like they get married off and now they're forced to have babies because again that's their job that's basically their job um, or if the kid, if the husband doesn't care if they're, if the wife gets pregnant, he just wants to, you know, do his business yeah. the way he wants to do his business with this woman. And if babies are the consequences and so be it. Lovely. Fuck the patriarchy. Yep. So anyways, so that, that's what I mean. Like it's, it's not just in Thailand. It's just in, that's just how that, but see, that's the thing. Like, um, women i guess in in this situation like the in, in indonesia commodities um the same thing as children are in different parts of the world you know they're being traded for labor or you know there's yeah, trafficking. They just make themselves useful yeah i mean poor families they do like horrible families sell the children into slavery you know like yeah but e- even like in a less extreme version of that like most kids would have chores and stuff to do yeah 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 if you have a loving family like the worst thing that you're looking at is chores <laughs> yeah but i can you know that's the same principle though like yeah and because because it's a buddhist community they're like oh well you know you have a uh, several lifetimes behind you yeah so if you don't do if you don't do it now you're gonna fuck up in your next life exactly next, yeah. mm-hmm. so that's like the the idea behind these kumantong is like it's a give and take relationship where it's like, I'm going to adopt this, you know, Kumantong and, or Kumantong. And, um, it's in its best interest to serve me or offer me its supernatural aid because it benefits them for their afterlife. Whereas I can directly benefit from it now. Yeah. You feel me? I get it. (laughs) All right. So, there are also shrines in Buddhist temples to Kumantong. Here, Kumantong can accept offerings and provide help for those who ask for it. Some shrines have actual preserved bodies of a fetus or a baby, while others just have figurines, like wooden figurines. Wow. Uh, okay. The preserved bodies are usually given to the temples and not acquired like the black market fetuses where they're stolen or bought from crooked doctors or nurses in abortion clinics or hospitals. I was actually going to ask that, yeah. I got all your answers right here. So, would it be the <laughs> families that donate them? Yeah. You think? Okay. Uh, there is a Kumantong shrine in Bangkok called Wat Pradu that houses a preserved body of conjoined twins with two heads and one body that died at birth. They're displayed in a jar and surrounded by offerings. Like, to this day. 
the body was given to a monk for its burial rites in 1960s. Wow, my like the southern just came out. Yeah, <laughs> burial, <laughs> burial rites. Burial. <laughs> but then the abbot of the temple asked to keep it so that they could make a shrine for it. The father agreed, and now it's in a shrine outside the main temple. And those who make offerings do so in twos. Oh, okay. A monk at the shrine believes that this kumanthong holds lots of power. Like, it still has a life force. Because he claims to have to have change his encasing four times because the body's actually growing. What? Yeah. That's nuts. In this article by Megan Sanat. She interviewed 12 anonymous devotees of this tradition. She asked if they have ever tried to harness an adult spirit. They said that dealing with adult spirits is dangerous and shouldn't be done because those kinds of spirits cannot be controlled at all, whereas child spirits are easier to deal with. Something peculiar that they mention as well is that the spirit can age and eventually pass on to rebirth at whatever age they were supposed to die had they been born or lived their lives normally. One devotee explains that she adopted the spirit of a 10-year-old and raised him to the age of 20 or 30. And they're just guessing, you know. So, like, uh, one of the things that I was reading is, like, like this this author, or this, um, the author of this article, they're, like, the way she worded it, it was, like, when, when she asked them, what about adult spirits? They like basically shit their pants and were like, hell no. Like there's like horror stories, you know? So like these Kumantan can can come and they go as they as they please if they wanted to. You know, they're they have their own will, but it's believed well, it's believed that they have their own will and that they come go as they please. And they believe that they're helping the family because they want to. But it's really dicey when you're dealing with things like this because what if they don't want to? Yeah, and also you're assuming that the child is happy with the family. It's a blanket statement. Like this whole thing is blanket because um, like like with anything, there's always exception to the rules. Yeah. You know, like what is terrifying to me is if a figurine is housing a, a very weak spirit of a child and has no choice in the matter and if you don't follow the ideology of buddhism then you essentially have soul slaves oh you're just purely using it for your benefit yeah you're not concerned about them gaining karma yeah because what if yeah like if you follow the school of thought that there is no reincarnation then you're keeping the soul from passing on right so that's why I'm saying, like, I don't know how I feel. Yeah, yeah. Kumantong can also possess people. Oh. Yes. This same article interviews a woman simply named Jim. Jim? Jim. Like Jim and Pam? Yeah, but Jim is the lady. Interesting. In this story. Okay. What's up, Jim? The spirits may possess. This is the story. The spirits may possess their guardians either to protect their guardian or to get something that they, the spirits, desire. Jim described an event in which a kumantong 
physically possessed her when denied a chance to celebrate a birthday with her friends. The friend, who also had a kumantong, invited her kumantong to go with them. Jim told her own kumantong that it was not necessary for him to go with them and that he should stay and watch over the house, which was his primary duty. When they were cutting the birthday cake, she described having the odd feeling of desiring it even though it was chocolate, and she has never liked chocolate cake. This feeling of craving the cake overcame her, and she ate it. While she was eating the cake, she broke a glass and stepped in the glass carelessly. She continued to eat, oblivious to the fact that she was bleeding. She became aware of herself once again the next morning after having a disturbing dream. She dreamt she went to a party and a naked child was hanging off her clothing. The child was a mixed sex and he, she urinated on her and was shouting, are you scared yet? Are you scared yet? It's me. She later dreamt the same dream. She hypothesizes that the child was her friend's kumanthong reacting to wanting cake, but not being able to have some unless he actually possessed Jim. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. And fucking terrifying. Yeah. Here's an interview from that article. So sorry, that that's not Jim telling the story. It's uh Sanat's account of Jim's story. Okay. Yeah. Sanat is the, uh, the author, author of the article. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> police Colonel Hitima Tongchai working at the police station that was handling a case. Um so she was chilling at the police station working. Well, not chilling. She was working. And while she was working, the officer told the story of child spirits communicating with her late at night. The remains of infants and fetuses, the distinction was never made and is generally not made when talking about child spirits, were being held at the station as the case was being investigated, the case that she was on. In the interview, the officer said she was working until about nine in the evening when she heard the sound of children crying. She asked her workmate if he was doing something on his computer to make the sound, and he replied that he was not. She told him she heard the sound of children crying, and her workmate said he heard it too. She said she had never raised Kumantong, so she asked her workmate what to do. And he suggested they buy snacks and beverages for the Kumantong, and she did so. The workmate had a break and went out and went to smoke outside the building and he heard whispering in his ear. Big sister is really good hearted. Big sister being the officer giving them the yeah. gifts. Okay. Oh. Referring to the police officer who had bought them snacks. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. That's actually a really nice little story. Yeah. So I mean it's a mixed bag, you know. Yeah, so just like any other ghost story really yeah yep so that's crazy it's crazy <laughs> like how they say like um like when i was reading about uh kuman Dep, the spirits that are instructed by the heavens to find a family because like their thing is you know well whenever we have kuman thong because they came to us in dreams so like you that's how we acquired them, you know. Right. I thought that was interesting because I had a dream about a baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. 
So just to sum up the dream real quick, it was just like apparently had a baby now. And uh, this is your responsibility. And she was my responsibility. I Yeah. Uh, it was a little girl. She could talk to me telepathically. I left her at daycare because I had to go to work. And I told her I'd be back. I took the train. And when I got to the train stop, I got off. And I woke up because I had to go to work. I woke up before my alarm, like 30 minutes before. So you never went back for her? No. But it, it's crazy daycare. because it's almost as if in my dream, I was like, look, baby, I'll be back. I have to go make money for us. And it was as if the train ride to the train station was my 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 soul coming back to my body because it knew that I had to wake up yeah, to go yeah. to work. It was like it's almost like a transition of me actually just coming you know what back. I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So that's what it was. That's interesting. Like it was so natural. Like Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's our human thought. Maybe. But that's my story. Yay. What'd you think of it? That's very cool. No, I like that one. Right on. Any stories from other countries, like, not just necessarily paranormal, but, like, stories about other people's customs. Like, uh, uh, yeah. know, they're always interesting, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my God, you you put rice on the floor? Like, or whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I like looking into different stories like that because, I mean, if... If Sadi had never sent me that, I would have never fucking have known to even look at this, you know. Yeah. Um, and that segues into us reminding our listeners, if you have a weird tradition, <laughs> or I guess even a normal tradition, because they think this is pretty normal in Thailand, um, just send it to us and it could be talked about in the next episode. Um yeah, so like these Kumon thi- Kumon Tong uh fetuses, like people have these these little skeleton they look like little baby mummies and they have them. People buy them. Um there was like uh oh I forgot to cite my sources. It was uh Atlas Oscura and Cambridge.org. And uh, in Atlas Oscura, in that, in their article, it was saying that they, like, um, they um, stopped a traveler from Thailand, and because he had like weird stuff, he was flagged for like um, a checking or whatever, mm-hmm. and he was in possession of six fetuses, and having one is illegal yeah. unless like you're. A doctor or something. Or, yeah, or, like, it's in a shrine and it was acquired Mm. because the parents, you know, donated or whatever. Um, But he he intended to sell these. There's a a demand for these. And it was, like, the article said that each one of these were um, appraised for, like, $6,000 a pop. Wow. Yeah. Keep your fetuses to yourself. Anyways. So, I guess... uh, We'll see you on the next one. No. No? It's time for a listener story. Oh, shit. You're right. What am I thinking? What so podcast f- am I on? <laughs> <laughs> so this week we have a story from a Reddit user, Fat Twist. Mm. And I asked her, did you want to remain 
anonymous or give us your real name or should I say fat twist and she said yeah that's fine it doesn't really matter so here you go fat twist hey fat twist <laughs> so it's just a quick one um that she sent me the other day she said she has more but this one will do for now so ever since i was little i've always been afraid of having the closet door in my room being closed i always felt like if it was closed and then i opened it especially at night someone would be hiding in there same I've never had a closet. So I, don't know. Um, I could never explain that feeling or that way of thinking until one day when I was like 17 or 18 years old, I mentioned that feeling to my mom. She was like, when you were little and we used to live with your dad, you used to say you would see a man in the closet. We only lived with him up until I was five. And she used to always say that apartment was scary. She would say she used to hear, she would say she used to hear the kitchen faucet turning on Ice cubes being thrown into the sink, banging on the bedroom doors and footsteps. Most of all these things happened at night when everyone was in bed. She said she would go into the fa- t- she said she would go into the kitchen to close the faucet, but there was never any running water. So anyways, that's crazy. <laughs> that's how it ends. That's terrifying. Yeah. I, yeah, I have that I have not not for the same reason, but that's one of the reasons why I don't like sleeping with doors closed at all. Like my closet door has to be open. My bedroom door has to be open because I don't want any fucking surprises. And I'm the other way. I prefer to close the doors. I'm like, no, you, fuck it. I don't want to see it. You never had a closet? No. Alexa, play play the smallest violin. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were possessed just there. I was like, we don't have an Alexa. <laughs> You're like, I'm not Alexa. I'm Adam. Yeah. Um, I'm Alexa on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the houses are just built differently. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm like, not, I'm sure there are some houses that have closets at home before people start going, oh, you have uh, <laughs> How dare you insinuate Irish people don't have yeah. closets? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I had like just wardrobes. Mm, like okay. oh yeah yeah your room just did yeah. have a wardrobe so right. yep <laughs> <laughs> all right guys i guess that's it from us um don't forget to follow us actually i started a facebook this week this is going to come out later but there is a facebook group now i'm struggling with it desperately i haven't used facebook in years but it's at weekly creep just like everything else is so it's facebook instagram twitter uh, our gmail account if you want to email us a story is at our weekly creep at gmail.com we are on or at least we should be i actually thought we were on certain platforms that we weren't and i had to go and fix that so we should be on google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, stitcher basically anywhere you listen to podcasts we should be there except um, for soundcloud uh, yeah we're not on soundcloud yeah. if you're looking for us and you can't find us let us know and we'll be on there yeah okay and also check out the youtube videos as well um if you're that way inclined and thanks for all the support yeah and all the nice messages i actually wanted to shout out um kate from ontario who messaged us this week just to say that she was having a listen and that she was a big fan. So, Hey, Kate. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and thanks for the message. We really appreciate it. Yeah. 
All right. Bye. Bye. Yeah. There we go. Good stuff.